five, the most, uh, the latest thing we looked at, verse ten, talked about how we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And with that in mind, would somebody read chapter five, Second Corinthians five, verses eleven to thirteen? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. We are not again commending ourselves to you, but are giving you an occasion to be proud of us, so that you will have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Um, so, okay, look at what he says. You know, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. The, the fear of the Lord really governs and affects the way Paul preaches and teaches. You know, he fears the Lord, he doesn't fear people. That's a challenge for us. Often we're more concerned about pleasing people than we are the Lord. And his, his conviction that, that there'll be a judgment really colors everything he does. It, it affects how he approaches people with the gospel. You know, when when you know that a judgment day is coming, you're way more serious about presenting the gospel to others. It guarantees purity of motive and, and suppresses self-seeking. Uh, I, I think if we would look at everything in the light of the, the judgment day, it would, it would make us much more earnest in persuading others and much more real in our lives serving God and, and, and uh, dedicating ourselves to Him. So Paul said that, that we, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We're manifest to God and He hopes He's manifest also in your consciences. There are several times in 2 Corinthians He appeals to men's consciences. He's not appealing to their desires or their, their likes. He's appealing to their heart, to their conscience, to, to really, from, from, from their conscience, serve God. And then he says, we're not again commending ourselves to you. You know, it's, it, there's that uh, charge against him, the accusation we saw in chapter 3, that he, was, he always was commending himself. He says, really what we're doing is we're giving you ammunition to answer the people who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Now, the truth is, think about Paul's relationship to the Corinthian church. They should have been defending him to these intruders who come along and try to discredit him. I mean, they should have been the first to say, we're not about to listen to that. This is the man that God chose to deliver the gospel to us. But since they're not doing that, he's really giving them ammunition uh, to vindicate his character against the accusations of the enemies. These who took pride in appearance and not in heart. You see that a lot as Paul is talking about these false teachers. They were focused on the appearance. So they were interested in eloquence, in those letters of recommendation, in showing off their ability and their talents and things like that. They're more concerned about looking good than being good, which is a real challenge for us sometimes. And then he says finally in verse 13, no matter what he does, he's doing it for God and for them. If we're beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. So if, if we seem crazy, 
You know, we seem like we beside ourselves, it's for the Lord. And if we're a sound mind, it's for you. Isn't it strange how the world thinks that people are just mentally unbalanced when they dedicate themselves to God? Now, if you can dedicate yourself to throwing a small spherical object through a hoop, and everybody thinks that's cool. I like basketball. But I really think about it. You know, if, if you want to talk about people being beside themselves, if you think about the fanaticism of fans who really care about how often that ball goes through that little sphere, you know, I mean, that's a really practical sport. I mean, you know, you learn how to hunt and, you know, you know, do all kinds of things with that, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's no, what, what value do you get from that? And yet, there's all kind. think about all the things people dedicate themselves to. People dedicate themselves to working their thumbs over and getting all sorts of stuff going on on the screen. That means absolutely nothing. But, but you're perfectly normal and sane when you do that. But you dedicate yourself to the Lord. You start reading the Bible a bunch and praying a bunch and talking about the Lord all the time. He's weird. He's fanatical. You know, he needs some mental help. Isn't that crazy? But that's the way the world looks at it. And, but he says, if you think I'm rational, if you think I'm ra- irrational, you need to know that everything I'm doing, I'm doing because of my commitment to God and my determination to serve you. That was Paul's life. Thoughts and comments? Almost the theme of these chapters is just the idea of Paul's ministry, his service to God as a preacher of the gospel, as a revealer of the message. And he deals with several angles of that. He's really coming back to that theme again in many ways in this next section. Really important section. We're going to spend a whole lot of time on this. We're going to go through it, and then I'm going to divert and talk about some things that relate to this section for a while. So let's go ahead. I think I'll just go ahead and have us read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and try to analyze it a step at a time. So would somebody read... Verse 14, 5.14-6.2 For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So you know how it is reading Paul. It's not like reading some other things in the Bible. I mean, when Paul writes, 
he packs so much into a few words that it really means you've got to focus and concentrate almost word by word, phrase by phrase, and kind of try to follow it step at a time. That may seem tedious, but I think it's exciting. I think it's amazing to see how much there is, and it's just such, you know, wonderfully inspirational and encouraging material. So let's try to work our way through this. For the love of Christ controls us. I mean, what Christ has done for us demonstrates so much how, how much He loves us. When somebody loves you as much as Jesus loves us, it just... It, it ought to just control us. It ought to, it ought to be that, that how much He loves us just makes us serve Him and love Him so much in return. Nobody's ever done for us anything close to what Jesus has done for us. And so, so that's a powerful force. You know, if there's somebody in this life that really loves you, you know, maybe your mother or something like that, that has always just believed in you and loved you and sacrificed for you. Maybe you even spent some time where you didn't honor her and serve her, but you come back and you realize the force of her love is just so powerful. Well, the force of the love of Jesus is so powerful. He says, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. We're going to come back and talk about all these things some more, but I'm going to try to teach this straightforwardly as we go through, and then we'll go back and try to, to you know, zero in on it. But he died for all. Jesus died in our place. I believe what that means is that Jesus suffered the death we deserved. When it says he died for all, that is, he died in their place. We were under a curse... He endured that curse. He bore the penalty for our sins. So there's a sense in which his death was our death. Through him we die. And his life is our life. And we do not have to undergo the death. We don't have to be under the curse because he bore it for us. Now it says that he died for all. There is a theory that says that Jesus just died for the chosen ones. He didn't die for the other ones. That's not true. He died for all. Everybody ought to be told. They ought to know Jesus died for them. He died in their place. Now, he says, for he died, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Now, those he died for and those who live are not the same number. There's a smaller number that live than those that he died for, because not everyone receives the benefit of his death. Not everyone appropriates that. Not everyone believes. It's available for all. Jesus' death is available, uh, the benefits of that for any person, every person. But only those who receive that will live by the fact that he died for them. So there's a universal scope of redemption. There's nobody excluded from what Jesus has done. But it's applied by those who believe in the Bible sense. And, and we then have to make go through several changes. And what is a change of perspective? We don't live for ourselves any longer. We live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. 
You know, so it's like if he died for us, then we have a responsibility to live for him. Think about going to the lockbox, the safety deposit box, and taking like the title deed of our life out and signing it over to Jesus for eternity. And just, he now owns me. I, I belong to him. I live for him. That's exactly what we should think. That's the perspective we ought to have. To live for Jesus. I can remember as probably a 15 or 16 year old. Really starting to get into the Bible more and more. And one of the ideas that gripped me so much at that point was this idea. I belong to Christ. I live for Him. He's my life. I, I got that at 15 or 16. At 59, I'm still not living that the way I should. That's a powerful thought. And it's a powerful self-surrender. And that's exactly the way I need to live my life. Live it for Him. He owns me. Is that the way we look at ourselves? Then we have to have a change of outlook, a way of looking at other people. Look at verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know Him in this way no longer. Our conversion changes the way we see people. We don't look at them by worldly standards anymore. After we're converted, we never look at them the same way. We, we wouldn't judge Jesus by worldly standards. I mean, think about it. How successful, how successful was Jesus? You know, how much money did he make? How high did he rise in society? How popular was he? How much impact did he have on his contemporaries? You know, how good looking was he? How many degrees did he have? You know, I don't know. Think about all the ways we look at all that. How, how good an athlete was he? You know, did he get the, voted the most likely to, to succeed in his high school graduating class? You know, whatever. I mean, from a worldly standpoint, I do not think you would highly uh, evaluate Jesus. And yet, Jesus is everything to us. So clearly, worldly standards of looking at people are inadequate. When we come to share God's view of Jesus, then it changes how we view everybody. We view them by the standards of their closeness to Jesus. We view them with eternity as the yardstick. If you look at people from an eternal perspective, from a God-centered perspective, it changes everything about how you see them. You're not, you're not focused on how successful they are in business and, you know, how much clout they've got and, you know, how much status they've got and what their image is like and how good looking they are and how smart they are and all that kind of stuff. Doesn't matter. We don't judge people on that basis. Now, the intruders were judging Paul on the basis of the wrong criteria. They were looking at all those external things, but he said, we don't look at people that way anymore. You, you are most impressed by the people who really love Jesus. People who are really dedicated to Him. They may not be much of a success in life, the way we look at success. We don't care. That's not how we see people anymore. And then we have to change our person. Look at verse 17. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. We change our whole being. 
Everything about us died. Our, our, our hopes, our ambitions, our dreams. And, and we become a new creature. I mean, isn't it amazing that Paul uses creation language to describe this? You know, this, the, 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 the best way he can describe what happens to us in Christ, God just created all over again. He made something out of nothing. You know, we become another person, another universe. It's a whole new being. We don't, we're not just now, now we're, we're a Christian Gary. There's a whole new Gary. It's a whole different Gary. It's a whole different person. That's a radical change. We live in a world that's dominated by the old era, but we are part of the new era. We're really like from another galaxy. We don't fit in here. But but you see the incredible impact of seeing that Jesus died for us and how that changes everything about us. So he says, all these things are from God. God took the initiative. All of this is what God chose to do for us. It was not our achievement. It was God, amazingly, who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So, you've got a really good job with a nice boss. And you, in a horrible day, just really insulted your boss. You hurt him. You wronged him. In a really ugly way. And you really, this is not a good thing. It's not good on your employment. It's not good on your work. You just really blew it. So who takes the initiative to straighten things out with your boss? You're the guy who erected the barrier. And you're the guy who needs the job. I say you do. So we are the ones who sinned. We're the ones who erected the barrier. And we're the ones who need the Lord. And He's the one who took all the initiative to take away the barrier we put up between us. The sin barrier between us and God. Isn't that amazing? That, that's just incredible. This was God's idea, God's work, God's program, God's agenda, God's word of reconciliation. By means of the sacrifice of Christ, He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So through Jesus, God has this plan of He doesn't count our trespasses against us. Our sins are nullified by what Jesus has done for us. And He's committed to us this ministry of reconciliation, given us the word of reconciliation. It's like Paul is the one who's the diplomat announcing the amnesty program. You know, he delivers the invitation of God you would expect that the smaller, lesser countries send their ambassadors to entreat the favor of the greater country. But God is the one sending his ambassadors out to us to entreat us to be reconciled back to him. That is amazing. And notice that the emphasis here is on this reconciliation. And this is he writing to Christians. 
Sometimes we still need that reconciliation to be fully accomplished in our lives. He says, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I take it that there are listening to false teachers has put some wedge between them and the Lord again and they need to listen to the men who are Christ's ambassadors and come back to God. He says in verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Think about that just a little bit. He made him who knew no sin. So Jesus was not a sinner. Jesus never ever sinned. He was a pure and perfect sacrifice. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. God passed judgment against Jesus, though he had never sinned, so he could pass his judgment in favor of us. Christ was made what we are. He was made to be sin so that we could become what he is, the righteousness of God. So his relationship with God was severed so that our relationship with God couldn't be made right. The one who lived a sinless life died the sinner's death so that we might become sinless. Sin was put not to our account, but to his account. That's a profound idea. But the idea is Jesus suffered in our place. He bore our sins. He was treated as a sinner. He suffered as a sinner. He was not a sinner. But he was made to be sin. That is, he carried our sin and he suffered the punishment that our sins deserve so we don't have to suffer that punishment. Now that was not... Jesus acting on his own. That was the Father's plan. The Father and the Son were united in that plan. Jesus did not disappoint his Father in that. That was his Father's will. That Jesus bore the wrath and bore the sin and suffered in our place. Now there are those who argue that it should be translated sin offering. But that doesn't work. If you translate sin, sin offering, then it would be he made him who knew no sin offering to be sin offering on our behalf. So that, that's, not a, that's not an accurate translation. There's a reason why most of the translations translate this sin, because that's what the word means. Now, he encourages us then, urges us not to receive the grace of God in vain. If we are not reconciled, And if we are not ultimately saved, think about what that does. It nullifies the plan of God, the work of Christ, and the pleas of the ambassadors. And he's pleading with Christians who are in danger of going back on their commitment to receive the reconciliation. This is the day, this is the time, the wonderful era foreseen by the prophets. Don't take this lightly. I'm going to pause and let you ask some questions and make some comments. Some of the questions I may defer, depending on what they are, to the next section where I kind of delve into some of these things more. But feel free to, to talk and ask questions. Yes, Sam. So in uh, verse 19, 
says, uh, entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I got, I understood that probably talk about uh, in the apostles. Uh, I believe so. Yes, I think that's probably the apostles that have the ministry of reconciliation. So then is that the same as the we when about we are the ambassadors? I think so. I think in this passage, the we who are the ambassadors is probably the apostles. There's a secondary sense in which we take their word that they reveal, and so we're in a secondary sense ambassadors, but I suspect here he's thinking of himself and the other apostles. But it works for us in general. It works in a secondary sense, because what are we doing? We're taking the word of reconciliation to other people. I mean, the apostles taught us to do the same thing they did. We don't reveal it directly from God, but we take what they revealed and pass it on to others. Other thoughts, questions, comments at this point? What, I'm not sure I fully understand what what it means when he says he made him to be sin. We'll talk about that, so I'll table that one. Yes? Yes. Jeremiah 20 talks about how Jeremiah had the word in his bones like a burning fire and he couldn't hold it back. It's really like verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. You know, we just can't hold it back. We It, it overwhelms us. Good point. Other thoughts? Yes, Nicole. I think the idea is his death was our death. He died in our place, and so through him we died. We 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 had the punishment taken by him, and so his death counted for our death. We won't have to go through that death because he died that death. Okay, Let, let's. I want to discuss the nature of Jesus' sacrifice. We're going to talk about this for a little while, and uh, here's what I would like. I'm really hoping that there are some people here who disagree with me and who are willing to briefly present your case at the end of this and we'll, we'll at least discuss it to some extent. For me, I was not aware until a few years ago that there was a divergence among brethren about what we're going to talk about. But there is a great deal of divergence. And at least in some parts of the country, there are a lot of brethren who do not agree with what I'm going to talk about. I believe, and I'll show you why, that what we're talking about is fundamentally important. This is not a side issue. What I really think happens sometimes is we get caught up in teaching the everyday life applications of the Bible. And we don't focus so much on the deeper things the Bible teaches, almost the theory of salvation. And so I, I think we just kind of left a lot of things untaught for a long time. And when we don't teach it, then we're vulnerable. So I think we need to go back and teach it now kind of in a crisis period. So I, I'm, we're going to look at several passages. I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 
Look at verse 3, 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. First importance. This is not a trivial matter that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, I think we have to go back and try to understand the background and the context. I mean, I think there's in us kind of this idea, why didn't God just forgive us? What does Jesus' death have to do with us being forgiven? I mean, couldn't God just, you know, dispense with Jesus? He just forgives us. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, look at Romans 1. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So the gospel is the power of God because the righteousness of God is revealed in it. 4 verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the gospel is the power of God because in it is the righteousness of God because the wrath of God is is against those who who, uh, have sinned. All unrighteousness is under the wrath of God. Now he really develops that. You can't really understand salvation until you understand our condemnation. All men are sinners. And God's wrath is against all unrighteousness. Now, if you took that in a general sense, God's against all wickedness, be a lot of people nodding their head, yeah, you ought to pour it out on God. But in chapter 2, he deals with two groups who might make themselves examples. The good moral man. And he makes the point, verse chapter 2, verse 1, therefore you have no excuse Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things, and God's judgment is just. That's what he goes on to say. And so, when you do the same things, tell me you're not a sinner when you pass judgment on the sinners. And uh, he says in verse 5, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation. The righteous in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. And when he renders to each person according to his deeds, that means I'm lost. I've sinned. He then talks about the Jew who gloried in possessing the law and in circumcision. He was a sinner too. He comes down in chapter 3, verse 10, and, and quotes from the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Everyone is a sinner. Everyone is under God's wrath. That is fundamental. We have to understand that. I think we struggle with that. It doesn't seem like that's true for me. 
because I haven't done what that person did. When I spent a lot of time in Luther Lockett Correctional Complex as a visitor and not a resident, I, uh, I, I saw people who, for example, were guilty of murder and rape really looking down on the child abusers. Now, child abuse is horrible. But murder and rape is not exactly picnic. You know, to me, it didn't make a lot of sense. Well, you know, how do you mean, you're kind of inconsistent there. What, how does God look at us? You know, I, I could see it that way because I haven't been guilty of any of those things, thank God. But my sins, you see, they don't seem like they're in the same category. What if you were totally pure like God is? You never committed any sin. And he sees me with the sins I've committed looking down on the people. He'd say, well, I mean, yeah, you didn't commit that one, but look at the ones you've committed. We're all condemned. We're all under the wrath of God. Now look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short, not have fallen short, fall short. They've sinned and therefore they present tense fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption of this Christ Jesus, that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus redeems us. He paid the ransom price to buy us. Then he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, a propitiation is a sacrifice that satisfies wrath. So think about people in the Old Testament. Were people who lived by faith in the Old Testament forgiven? Yes. Think about David. Nathan came, he confessed. What did Nathan say? Your sins are forgiven. And David, Psalm 32, praises God for forgiveness. But, but from an Old Testament perspective, God didn't look just when he forgave. He was nice. What's well, wonderful, he forgave. But there didn't seem to be an adequate just basis for forgiveness. You know, I found it interesting in prison. The prisoners evaluated judges differently than I do. They thought the awesome judges were the ones who let the criminals off the hook. I didn't usually think those were the good ones. It all depends on your perspective. So from a sinner's perspective, if God lets sinners off the hook, that sounds great, but it's not just. We just like it because we're sinners. So from an Old Testament perspective, God appeared to be a nice guy, God, but not a just God. Jesus' death corrected that misimpression. Because when Jesus died, we saw that God did have an adequate basis for forgiving their sins. Jesus died in their place too. Have you ever written a check that you didn't have the funds in the bank to cover? But you knew by the time they got the check, you'd have the money in the bank. That's not a wise move for us. You know, there's things that can come up. God knows everything. God wrote the checks of forgiveness in the Old Testament, knowing infallibly that the money of the blood of Jesus would be in the bank by the time they came to pay those checks. And so God actually, in Jesus, proves he was just when he forgave their sins. 
present tense, New Testament, Jesus allows God to be both just and justified. Normally you can't be both. Normally a judge either is just and he condemns the criminal, or he justifies the criminal and he's unjust. God wanted to be just, he had to be just. His wrath had to be satisfied. God can't just say, oh, I'll just forgive him. That would be unjust, and God is not unjust. But by punishing sin in Jesus, by Jesus taking our penalty, Him suffering our curse, Him dying in our place, then God was able to be just and justified. God can't just sweep our sin under the rug, but He deals with it justly in Jesus' death. I want you to think about some ideas. Look at Genesis 22. In Genesis 22, you know this passage, God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham is about to, I'm assuming he had the knife at the neck, ready to slit his throat. When in verse 12, God says, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. Abraham looked and there was the ram, and he offered him, into verse 13, he took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. The ram was killed in the place of Isaac. I believe the ram represents Jesus in that. That, that Jesus was, he, he took our place in death. And so just as the ram took the place of Isaac, so Jesus takes our place. You remember that in the Passover. God came through and killed the firstborn in every household. Except for the households where the lamb had died in the place of the firstborn. You've got that substitutionary idea. When, when the Israelites would offer a burnt offering, they would lay their hands on the animal. The animal would die in their place. I remember years ago hearing Robert Turner, who was a really fine preacher and very solid. I remember him writing on the board, a man sins, a man must die. Then he crosses out the man and puts the lamb. The man sins, the lamb dies in the man's place. That's the sacrificial concept. They did the same thing. They confessed their sins over the, the scapegoat and sent him off. They, they killed the other goat that took the punishment for the sins. The biblical concept is the substitutionary concept that Jesus, in this case, he took our place in punishment. Now I want you to look at Isaiah for a little while. Look at Isaiah 12. Isaiah 12, verse 1. Then you will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me, for God, the old God is my salvation. God was angry, and his anger was turned away. Why was God's anger turned away? In Isaiah 5, you see the picture of the vineyard that bore awful fruit, and God was going to punish it. But look at Isaiah 27. Isaiah 27, 2. In that day a vineyard of wine singeth, but I the Lord am its keeper. I water it every moment, so that no one will damage it. I guard it day and night. I have no wrath. God was wrathful toward his vineyard in Isaiah 5. By Isaiah 27, he has no wrath toward his vineyard. What happened to his wrath? Look at Isaiah chapter 51. Isaiah 51, 22. 
Thus says your Lord, the Lord, even your God, who contends for his people, Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my anger. You will never drink it again. Isn't that awesome? We deserve the cup of wrath, and he took the cup of wrath out of our hand. You'll never drink it again. We'll never experience the wrath of God. But why? How? On what basis was God allowed to do that and still be just? That's Isaiah 53. But for a minute, go back to Isaiah 1, and then I'll come to Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 1, Isaiah talks about how incredibly sinful the people were. God really speaking through Isaiah. Isaiah 1, 5. God came to the end of his rope. Listen to God. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your, your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not rust out or bandaged or softened with oil. You see where God's at? I've beaten you black and blue all over. There's no place to hit you anymore. You know, you're just a mess of wealth. And, 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 and you're just bruised everywhere. I don't know. I can't do anything else. Now, Isaiah 53. Verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He suffered in our place. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquity. The chastening fell upon Him for our well-being. By His scourging we are healed. Here we were beaten black and blue, deserving every bit of that punishment, and then Jesus was whipped in our place. He took our whipping, he took our curse, he took our punishment, he took what the sins deserve. Look at verse uh, 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. The stroke should have fallen on the people. It fell on Jesus. Or you think about verse uh, 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render him as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Why did Jesus suffer these things? For us. Now, one of the knocks on this idea is to say that, well, God and Jesus were always united. And they were always working together. Amen. This was God's plan. This was not Jesus somehow against God. God was pleased to crush him. God did crush him as our sacrifice. But this was not against God. This was what God wanted. This was the plan. Jesus bore our wrath. He bore the wrath we deserve. As a result of the anguish of his soul, verse 11, he will see it and be satisfied. 
Jesus' death satisfied the need for punishment for sin. He was punished for our sins. He says, my servant, by, by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And again in the end of verse 12, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. God saw the anguish of his soul. God was satisfied. Jesus suffering took our place. He was our substitute. And because of what he endured, we don't have to. So God and Jesus were never enemies of each other. This was God's plan. He was placed. One of the things I hear people saying is, well, nobody can bear the sin of another. Ezekiel 18, the soul that sins it will die. Yeah, that's exactly true. And that's the amazing thing. Jesus died in our place. If that's not true, then do we die for our own sin? If if we don't have Jesus dying for our sin, the soul that sins it will die. If that applies, then I have to die for my sin. Clearly, the principle, the soul that sins it will die, here's the amazing thing. Jesus died in our place to where I'm the soul that sins and I don't have to die. It's amazing to me that people can't see that. That... You wonder, with the way some people look at it, why did Jesus die? If he didn't die for my sins, did he die for his own sins? He didn't have any sins to die for. Why did he die? Why did he suffer? If if, if it wasn't for me, if he wasn't taking my place, then, well, it shows a good example of love. I'm not even sure it does that. If what he did, did not benefit me, then is it even loving? I mean, I can go out, and go, go out here and kill myself. That's a great example of love to you. Well, not really. How did that love you that I killed myself? So, it is an example of love if Jesus was bearing my punishment. Jesus did not become a personal sinner. I agree with that. He was sinless. If he was a personal sinner, he couldn't have borne my sin. He'd have to bore his own. He took my sins on him. I don't think that makes him a personal sinner. I don't believe it would be biblical to say that Jesus became an adulterer, a fornicator, a liar, a drunk, and so forth. He bore those sins. He was punished for those sins, but he did not become a personal sinner. I realize there are people in the world who would teach that, and I believe that's going too far. Now let me suggest this. I appreciated uh, at, at, at the Indiana Bible Camp this summer, Scott Smelser, who I will not do justice to his what he said, but it was very helpful. He taught on overcorrection. And it was cool how he did that. He, he does a lot of stuff with, uh, you know, visuals. And so he showed, you know, to a bunch of boys, who some of who are, whom are starting to drive and some of whom are looking forward to starting to drive. You know, he showed the car that, you know, goes kind of off the road, and then, you know, what do you do? You yank it back on. You know, you you did, you you went too far to the right, so you yank it to the left, and you overcorrect, and the car, you lose control of the car. And you learn in driving, you can't overcorrect. You know, we have the snow and ice and one thing and another. I mean, that's one of the biggest things. You know, you start overcorrecting, you set up that rebound action, you're going to lose control of that car. You can't do that very, you can't overcorrect more than two or three times, and you, you've lost it. you got to stop and realize, okay, it's going that way, but I can't go too far the other way, 
or it's just going to provoke the opposite reaction. We do that biblically, theologically. So we see Calvinists who have some wrong teachings and we overcorrect wanting to make sure we're not Calvinists. Well, John Calvin taught some really great things about the Godhead. I shouldn't oppose those things because he taught them. You know, the point is, what does the Bible say? I don't care what Calvin said or anybody else said. We don't take our beliefs in reaction to other people. We take them from what the scriptures teach. Look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 10. 3.10 For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Right? We're under the curse. The soul that sins it will die. We're under the curse of death, separation from God. But verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took our curse. 1 Peter 2. It's amazing how much the Bible teaches this concept. 1 Peter 2, 24. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might, so that he might bring us to God. He died for our sins, the just for the unjust. I want you to think of the concept. Look at Jeremiah 25. Think of the concept of the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, it's probably the most comprehensive passage on the concept of the cup of God's wrath. It's found quite a few times in the Old Testament and a couple times in the New Testament. But in, in, in Jeremiah 25, 15, For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, for that's the Lord, the God of Israel says to me, take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. So the cup of God's wrath is like you drink the, the cup. It's like an evil potion and you just go berserk. You know, you start vomiting and staggering and falling out and going into coma and whatever. And uh, it's a figurative way of describing the wrath of God. Verse 27, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more, because of the sword which I will send among you. They, that, that's the cup of God's wrath. You see that in Revelation 14, where the beast worshippers would have to drink the cup of God's wrath mixed in full strength in his anger. In Revelation 14, verses 9-11, through 11, the smoke of their torment goes up for and ever and ever. Well, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. Look at John 18, verse 11. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? I've heard people use that passage to say he didn't drink the cup. No. He's saying, I will drink the cup. Don't try to defend me. Jesus prayed the cup would pass from him. I believe he means the cup of God's wrath. You think about Jesus suffering in the garden. He knew what this was going to be like. And I do not believe he was in anguish in the garden to the extent that he was just because he was afraid to die a physical death. Now, crucifixion is horrible. But I don't believe it was just because of the pain of the crucifixion. There was something deeper involved. It wasn't just he was dying. It wasn't just that he was being crucified. It's that he was drinking the cup of God's wrath. 
He bore our punishment. Now, if Jesus receives our punishment, our sins deserve more than physical death. I believe Jesus experienced some type of spiritual suffering or death that we will not have to experience. Now, I'm going to say a couple things in this section that I would not think that it's heresy if somebody doesn't agree. Up to the point I've said, I really do believe what I've said is absolutely fundamental. We have to come to agreement on that. What I'm going to say now, I believe, and I'll explain why, I do think there's more margin for question marks about exactly how this works out. But in Psalm 16, the the Psalms of David are interesting in that they usually have an application for him and an ultimate application in Jesus. I really don't want to take a whole lot of time on this point, so I'll try to summarize it. It's a cool point. Psalm 16 is David saying, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. And he talks all about his relationship with God. He comes down to verse 9. says, Therefore my heart is glad, my glory rejoices, my flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to shield, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So he's talking about himself as a man dedicated to God and how God would be with him even in death. But Paul and Peter pick up on Psalm 16 and they say, that didn't apply to David. His, his grave is still there. This is applied to Jesus. Well, it did apply to David in one sense. I believe David's right about himself. But, but I believe what Paul and Peter recognize is that this was more than David. If you really press the language of this psalm, in full application, it only applied to Jesus. Think about it. You are my Lord. Who can say that truly other than Jesus? I have no good besides you. That was David's goal. But is there anybody ever who could say totally, truthfully, I have no good besides you? Everything in this psalm applied to David. But when you press it, it only applies to Jesus. Yeah, God was with David in his death. God would raise him eventually. But he wondered when he came. Literally, he did. So when you press the language of the psalm, it applies exclusively to Jesus in the full sense. Applies to David in the less than full sense. I think that's true of so many psalms. Look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance and the words of my groaning. I believe that's David groaning over what he's going through. But I believe that those words apply in a deeper and ultimate sense to Jesus. That Jesus experienced a separation from God, a bearing our wrath, our punishment, that David never experienced. That in the full sense, those words only apply to Jesus. Now, I believe when Jesus said those words, he didn't say it is written, but he does quote those words. At least he uses those words. And it seems to me that he meant those words. Now, I hear everybody saying, well, he really just referenced the psalm, and he's really talking about the rest of the psalm. Well, if he said those words, I assume at least those words apply. I agree the rest of the psalm applies to Jesus. But I believe what he was saying was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I don't believe that means Jesus was a personal sinner. I don't believe that God was displeased with Jesus, but I do believe that God was punishing sin in Jesus. Whatever you think about that, come back to 2 Corinthians for a minute, and then I'm going to open this up for your discussion, and hopefully for somebody to present some arguments on the other side. I mean, what he says is, in 2 Corinthians 5.14, that one died for all, 
in verse 15 that he died for all. That he died and rose again on their behalf. That in verse 21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. I believe those passages are teaching that Jesus was our substitute. That God made Jesus, Jesus voluntarily, suffer the punishment our sins deserve. He took our curse. He died for us. The reason he died wasn't because he sinned. He died because we had sinned. And so his death was in our place. That's what I believe. Thoughts and comments. Yes. was that Jesus is the son of God drinking that cup of wrath would even be more difficult for him. Yes. 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 The, this was keeping God's promise to glorify his name. God was glorified in Jesus suffering for us. Yes, right. does really show how loving God is both in the Old and New Testament. Amen. to what extent Jesus was forsaken. Clearly not that he was disobeying his father himself or that God was disappointed in Jesus. He was suffering the punishment that sin deserves, that we won't have to suffer. And that punishment was more than just physical death. You know, it was a spiritual death that our sins deserve. 
I don't think we have a whole lot of details to describe for us what all that means and how how to consider all of that. Um, but it does seem to me it's more than physical death and when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because he was bearing our sins. He was suffering the consequences, the effects of our sins. And so I don't think that nullifies the fact that he's, he and God were working together in this. I think this was a part of the plan. And uh, so that, that's what I would say at this point. Again, I am less concerned about exactly how we understand that Jesus was punished. I think the thing that's most fundamental and so constantly taught is what Jesus went through, he bore what our sins deserve that we don't have to bear because he did. Whatever we think that was, and none of us will totally grasp all that that involved. Maybe only Jesus knows to what extent that was, you know, horrible. But, but we must believe that he died for us, that he took our place, that he was punished so we won't have to. Yes. First Peter 2, 24, it says, And he himself bore our sins on his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for his wounds you are healed. So right there specifically says... You know, exactly. Of course, First Peter two twenty four. It ought to bother us when we have such a struggle to say what the Bible says. And I, you know, I may be um, may be biased in this, but it worries me when we have to redefine everything. You know, I see people. Well, this word really means this, and this word really means that. You know, the translators of the Bible. And if we take several different translations and so forth, I'm, I'm really skeptical when I have to redefine everything. Why can't I just say what the Bible says? I, I don't want to be overly simplistic in that, but, but we've really just come at saying it the way the Bible says it. And I think that's important. Yes, definitely. Okay, good point. Yes, I mean, the question is, how long was Jesus bearing that punishment? Was it just during the time of darkness? Obviously, after he dies, he doesn't appear to still be bearing that punishment. I agree. This certainly does not appear to be something that continued after he died. Uh, but during those, that time on the cross, he was in some way bearing a punishment that we'll never have to bear. And again, I would say... Trying to grasp all of that meant and what that felt like and, and all some of that I think we just don't have a way to know for sure. So we're picking up hints by the darkness perhaps or hints by my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we're thinking about what our, the curse was and what says Jesus could bear that. But, but I think there's room for some differences of opinion about exactly what that meant. 
as long as we're united on the concept, Jesus died in my place, what he suffered was the curse of my sin. It was horrible. I think much more horrible than the physical sensation, but I don't know exactly what that meant or how that really worked out in Jesus' life. Yes, Yes, the question is, so is all we deserved to be on a cross for a few hours if he took our place? Doesn't it involve more than that? And so what I would answer are a couple of things. One is I think it was more than just being on a cross for a few hours. That's what I'm saying. I think there was more to it than just suffering physical pain for a few hours. And there was an intensity to that, and there was a bearing of the wrath of God in that beyond what we can imagine. And that only the Lord would know what is a proper bearing of our sins uh, and taking of our place. Um, and, you know, the thing that happens to us when we die in our sins is that we're banished from God. There's just no way to come back from that. Um, so, I, I don't have all the answers to that, um, but but it doesn't change what the Bible teaches. It just may mean I don't understand fully all that that meant. Uh, I have my ideas, I have my ways of thinking about that. But but I don't know that my way of thinking about that is necessarily the, the what. Um, so, so, you know, you can understand some things without understanding every detail. That's what I would say. Jake. I want to put that in question, you know, we have a day of substitutes and people sent, and uh, God values us, He loves us, but we're not the Son of God, we're not the Lord. And so, uh, when, when the Lord dies for us, it makes you think of, what are our currency for little tiny beads, you know, little plastic, the lives are wrecked by beads like this, what if someone had gold? All shiny beads in the world aren't going to add gold, real wealth, right? And I think that does is there's a sense in which Jesus is that through destiny to be comfortable about the presence of Jesus. And God cares about him, but he truly could die for the world. Because the Son of God is not one of us. Great point, yeah. He said, you know, it makes a difference if the Son of God died. It's like if you have a currency of shiny beads, somebody comes along with gold. You know, the gold is so much weightier, worth so much more. You have a ton of shiny beads and they don't equal, you know, some gold. And so the fact that Jesus, the Son of God, was dying on the cross was a different quality and a different level of intensity. And so we're almost not comparing apples and apples. And so to say, well, he would have to experience an eternity of suffering. He was a son of God suffering. That's a different matter. It's a good point. It's a good thought. Good way to look at that. Joe. I had this clear a minute ago. Um, I guess for all the questions that are asked in opposition, there needs to be an answer on the other side to that question. So the, the objection of, well, for him to die in our place, that we need to be for eternity or whatever. 
So are we saying that he didn't die in our place and therefore we still hold that punishment for eternal separation? Absolutely. Great point. So the question is, if he didn't die in our place, do we have to die for our sins? I think that's a good question. And if he didn't die for our sins, why did he die? Was it for his own? I don't think he had any. Why did he die? It's amazing to me when I have read the opposition. What I have read has been a critique of this position with no alternatives on it. I'm not sure what the other side really believes Jesus died for. Uh, That would be interesting to hear. Uh, See, I have Jason and then Seth. I think a lot of our issue with really understanding this deeply is our our fundamental misunderstanding of what sin is and what it does. Uh, I think you had mentioned that before uh, in some of what you said. But, you know, when you read passages like Ezekiel 16 and see, like, the the gross description of what sin really appears to God to be like. You know, when we sin and we look at the sin in our lives, we we downplay it. We say, well, you know, it's not that bad. Or or like you mentioned, it's not as bad as someone else. Uh, And we don't see the spiritual ramifications of that. We live in a physical world. We see physical things. And when we don't have a physical punishment for something, it's like, well, was that even bad? Well, when it comes to the Lord, yeah. Yeah, it's really bad. What sin is, then we'll never appreciate Jesus. Yeah, if we don't appreciate the awfulness of sin, we won't appreciate Jesus. Sam? The thing for me that makes this easier to uh, swallow and kind of understand it, uh, the concept of uh, having him as a substitution, is that while the Bible doesn't specifically use that term substitution, it does use the word propitiation, which means it's simply that. Uh, God's wrath was satisfied. Now it doesn't really comment that much on how that happened, but just the word propitiation gives us a guarantee that it was satisfied. Um, so, yeah, propitiation means the wrath of God is satisfied. Yes, awesome. The thing I'm hearing um, specifically from several co-workers is, so if he did and it's done, then what's the point of all of this? Why, why do anything? Um, you know, why, why worship him? Why serve him? become a Christian, if, if sin was died once for all and for many, then, then why not just go on with your life? Yeah, good question. So we, uh, the question comes from some people, so if Jesus paid the price for our sins, then it's paid and we don't have to worry about it. Well, he paid it, but we can't receive that payment without an obedient faith. Uh, so we receive the blessings of his atonement. By receiving it through faith. What's the
Okay. So the other side says that uh, Jesus died to make a ransom payment even though he didn't take our place. Uh, although, you know, it does say for him who died rose again on their behalf. I mean, and you've got some wording that sounds pretty close to taking their place. I'd have to, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to grasp what they may be saying by the ransom payment. I would use that same language to mean he offered himself in our place. That was the ransom. Well, you know, wow, we've all struggled with things and we've all been on the wrong side of some things. You know, and what I've found in times when I've been on the wrong side of things and people keep coming back to me with the Bible, eventually it's like, you know, that's what it says. And I keep arguing against it. And so, I mean, sometimes the best thing we can do is just keep... Here's what it says, here's what it says, here's what it says, here's what it says. That's what's convinced me when I've been confused about things. I'm sure I still am confused about some things. And it helps me when somebody just comes back and says, but look at it. Here's what it is. Here's what it says. Yes, And sometimes it's not just hard to understand, it's hard to like. Historically, especially the first half of the 20th century, the theologians went against this because they didn't like the idea of the wrath of God. You know, that that's the hang-up a lot of theologians have. They don't believe in the wrath of God anymore, and if you don't believe in that, then how could Jesus bear the wrath of God for us? Adam? Good point. So using the soul in Isaiah 53 may indicate a deeper aspect of this. I know I'm over time and giving you a break. I think I'm going to do that. Hold your thoughts. You've got some more. Uh, we'll talk about them some more when we come back. And then we're going to sing some songs. And then we'll move on. Our break to eat is at 12.30, so you've got another hour there. But let's take about a 15-minute break, and then we'll come back, okay?